This episode of See Here is dedicated to the respectful memories of James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, Michael Schwerner, Edward James House Jr., and Nehemiah Curtis James. Episode 57 of the See Here podcast. My name's Morris. I'm here in Melbourne. On the other end of a Skype connection, I have Bernie in Bath. Hello. And Tim in Toronto. Howdy. Actually, I'm in Brantford, but it's uh, okay. Yeah, it, it doesn't work if you do that. Anyway, thanks very much for joining us. We are very, very excited to be presenting this episode to you. We always are very happy to be recording See Here for your ear holes, but this one we think is a very, very special episode. So we've just finished doing an interview with Benjamin Hadeen. He's the writer and producer of a 2016 documentary called Two Trains Running. And ostensibly, it's two stories, one that's about the search for a couple of wonderful country blues artists, Sunhouse and Skip James, who had not been heard from in many, many years, and how they came to be part of the new blues movement, how they were celebrated at Newport Folk Festival. And it's also about the civil rights movement that was taking place at the time and how many of the university students from the North came down to register African-American voters when Linda B. Johnson had made segregation illegal. So this is a fascinating film, one that everyone out there has to see. We wholeheartedly recommend this. So what we'll do now is quickly go play the trailer for the film, and then we'll go straight into our conversation with Benjamin. He's a fascinating fellow. Even if you haven't seen the film yet, you'll gain much out of it, but... We hope that you feel the need to go and watch this film as soon as you can after listening to our conversation. So uh, we'll be back in a couple of moments with Benjamin. You're listening to See Here, episode 57. The blues' earliest days are lost to time, and many of those who made the first blues recordings disappeared. The story of the blues is riddled with inaccuracies and, and, you know, all this kind of mythology. It was all mystery. Until a few young men decided to go off in search of these legends. These guys were obsessed with this sound. If there was any chance of these people still being alive, it was worth whatever effort to get them in front of a microphone again. Their quest brought them to Mississippi in the summer of 1964. It was tense, and we drove into this. We are not going to permit any outside group to come into this state. The thought of getting in a car and kind of pointing it south and thinking that it would be easy enough to find a performer like Sunhouse, I mean, it's, it's like Bigfoot hunting. There was so little information for them to go on. Three white kids and one black guy in a Volkswagen. <laughs> yeah, in a Volkswagen. Well, there's two trains running, and they're running. 
with me night I've had to break a day Had to break a day Had to break a day Oh, Lordy There were two trains running that summer, and they would meet one fateful Sunday in June. episode 57 of see here podcast and on the other end of a phone call and skype conversation we have the producer and writer of the 2016 documentary two trains running mr benjamin hadeen thanks very much for joining us on see here benjamin uh, thank you for having me first of all congratulations on the release of two trains running the three of us are absolutely floored with how wonderful it is before we go to speaking to the events that the film investigates and the actual making of the film i wanted to ask you just a little bit about your background your background from your website says that you're in writing and in music and you've written and edited a book on the work of bob Dylan, as well as a book on the civil rights movement which i guess led to the film of two trains running were you always passionate about the folk and blues music of that era um yes you know not not always in the sense that you know prior to adolescence but once I did discover and, and discover that I liked the music of the folk revival, as it was in the 60s, as it was now, that music sort of provides an entryway to the country blues, mm-hmm. um, to these figures who performed blues solo more often than not, just accompanied by a guitar. You know, from about the age of 18 on, I was very interested in it and then very interested in the fact that a lot of these figures had quote unquote disappeared and, and then been found, had been sought out by some unlikely converts. You know, so I was aware not only of the music, but of this story. And that, you know, I mean, even so long before I planned to write the film or, or, or write the book. So what was it that actually prompted you to write these books and then go on to do the film? Did you have an interest in being a documentarian? What was it that prompted you? No, no, you? not at all. No, that book, that, that book that about the civil rights movement you mentioned, In Search of the Movement, the struggle for civil rights then and now. There was a time when the work that I was doing for that and what became Two Trans Running, when it was all one project. Um, when I was just doing a lot of interviews and a lot of research into Mississippi, there was this story about the student activists coming to Mississippi during the Mississippi Summer Project of 1964 or Freedom Summer, and at the same time, these kids who were a lot like the student volunteers, young white from the North and from the West Coast, that they also were traveling, but it had nothing to do with civil rights, it had to do with finding old blues singers. The two couldn't be reconciled. They could not become part of the same book. And so I went on to write and search the movement. I had this story about the search for Sunhouse and Skip James. I, you know, I didn't really know what to do with, do with it. I did write it. It only came out to about 35 or 40 pages. Mm. And I sort of put it away for about a year and a half. And then I just had the thought one day, you know, that would make a good movie. And, and I really had no idea what that meant. But I had a director in mind, Sam Pollard, 
who I had read an interview with about a similar project he made and whose name always appears in films about blues and civil rights as director, editor, producer. And so I took the 35 pages that I had written, converted it to a treatment, and I, I sent it to Sam. And that was really the beginning of Two Train before. So you went and wrote your book, you went and did this investigation. Did you find that there had been, to that point, inadequate documentation on the search for these musicians, or there was a side to the civil rights movement that you didn't feel had been adequately written about in books, academic or general? Well, you know, that's a good question. I don't, the story of Mississippi Freedom Summer is copiously handled. I mean, it's, it's been documented. Uh, I almost want to use the, the term ad nauseum, but, you know, n you know, never alongside the story of these singers and the, the story of the search for the singers for Sunhouse and Skip James. It's certainly known to the, to the blues cognoscenti, the people who are familiar with the history of American music, but it, that too is examined in isolation, not against the backdrop of what was happening in the culture. Mm. So placing each one of them in, in a new context was part of the excitement and, and part of the challenge of the film. Right. And I stress challenge, and I'm not sure it's a challenge in a way that, that can be negotiated. I mean, the film is about coming together of, of the races and about this, you know, this piece of the American zeitgeist. Whites were finally owning up to the contributions that African Americans have made in the country's cultural and political life. Right. And, you know, sometimes that, that in general is hard to document. A, a, a mood mm -hmm. or a turning point in the, in the brain of a nation. So it's not, you know, so when I say that it's been inadequately documented, some of that is because of loss. Some of it's because it's hard to do. I'm not trying to disparage previous documentarians or writers. I think near the end of the film, when you get into the issue of the murder of the three young activists, you know, you say that it was undeniable now what was going on down there. And I think that where, for me, the two issues come together with the music and what was going on with the activism was the fact that after they brought them north to the folk festival, it was undeniable what this music could do and the effect that the music had on a wider on a wider spectrum of people. And that was the positive undeniability. But I think the negative undeniability that you mentioned is this murder of these three young men that was really terrible. So I think that's kind of how they intertwine is that through the music and through this terrible event, there's an undeniability of what was coming out of Mississippi. I mean, good and bad. Yes, yes. No, I think that's well put. And that's the way that, you know, we designed the film, is that they would, <laughs> there would be like a counterpoint or a contrast between those two. Frankie was a good girl, everybody knows. He paid a hundred dollars for hours, one suit of clothes. He's a man, and he done it wrong.
the format of the film for the people listening who haven't seen it yet is that you spend some time focusing on the search for the musicians and how wonderful the music was and then you intersperse that with stories about the northern university students coming down to Mississippi to register African Americans to vote after segregation is made illegal so I just wanted to know how you approach filmically to be able to go from one point to the next point back to the first point because it might have weighed heavily on your mind have we focused enough on this have the two issues become a bit muddled have we conveyed what we needed to convey was that a difficult thing to sort of go from point to point yeah it it was it was massively hard and our post-production we extended by at least six weeks just because there were so many cuts and it's just editing it took a lot longer and, and we had screenings where people were confused there are a few challenges one is that the story of freedom summer that can overwhelm any other subject mm. so we were kind of worried about that i mean we would do interviews we did lots of interviews that we didn't use they were with summer project alumni and they were talking about you know being shot at the power and the gravity of those stories that can put it on the screen in some ways it deserves its own film you know going back and forth was difficult and then there's a lot there are a lot of characters right there are three groups of three young men three people are looking for Sunhouse, three people are looking for skip james and then three activists are murdered on the same day that Sunhouse and skip james are found that was hard and then the geography of mississippi is hard that they're all close together but so some of that was easy to solve like with the geography we you know we showed maps on the screen and as far as going back and forth goes what we eventually decided and, and what viewers see in, in the cut is to stay pretty close to the point of view of the three kids who are trying to find sun house they leave new york city and they drive to Mississippi and that when they're in Mississippi that provides us an occasion or a pretext to draw back and say you know they're on this crazy quixotic errand it's almost comical that they're just going to drive up to a farm and ask about a blues singer <laughs> right Except this time, you know you know this is a time in the in the country's history when that's actually really dangerous because they will be mistaken for volunteers canvassing for voter registration right we try to condense everything and stick to their I'm going home, friend will sit down, and tell mama, I'm mama, friend will sit down, tell mama, I'm going home, sit down and tell mama, I'm going home, sit down and tell mama, cause there's no way for me to get alone. Some people have a complaint with a lot of music documentaries these days is that a lot of them rely on an aspect of the over-utilized animation in music documentaries. But I have to say, with your film, I loved the way that you put it all together with the animation. I mean, it was just so effective, and a lot of it was really very, very tense, and especially with, yeah, John Wilkins, when he, you know, when he pulls over, when he asks the men directions on how to get down the road, and just watching it, not even just hearing the narrative, but just watching it, you really feel the tension. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, you know, animation, it was the editor and co-producer's decision to use animation, Dava Wisnett, and when she did that, I mean, it was probably 2014, animation wasn't as de rigueur as it, you know, in music documentaries 
as it is now, like you say. But no, it, it, it is it is very vivid. A lot of it is hand-drawn. Right. Um, and, and, and we did it out of necessity in that there are no, there's only one photograph of either right. search, you know, of the one for Sunhouse or Skip James. Freedom Summer was documented really well. We did not need to end uh, right. And I don't think we would have. Some of it reminded me of the, the work of like Robert Crumb, some of the pencil sketches of Robert Crumb. And I just thought it was right. really cool. Yeah. And, you know, Crumb was a famous blues dude. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he actually knew Nick Pearls, one of the three who found oh, wow. the house. And Nick founded Yazoo Records. Right. So if you look at the if you look at the Yazoo Records releases, Crumb has done the illustrations for that. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. I think Crumb's Cheap Suit Serenaders put some records out on Yazoo as well, didn't they? I, I, I'm not sure about that. that. Okay. I just wanted to come back to this whole notion you've sort of gone and explained about the film like to focus a lot on the trip taken by Dick Waterman and Phil Spiro in search of Sunhouse. And just from yeah. a 2018 perspective where everyone knows everything about everything, but just it still seems incredible to me to think that they had no idea what was going on in Mississippi or how dangerous it was. I mean, I think there's even a moment in the film where Phil says you'd have to be brave, stupid, or ignorant to go. And we were all of you. Did he say to you outright, no, we had no idea what was going on? We were just, were they locked in their own world? Or No, it's a great question. And I, I put it to him over the years. You know, I mean, we interviewed Phil on camera, but I had interviewed him about nine times before that, a number of occasions through email. And I always do put that question to them. I mean, they did know about, right? Yep. How could you not? Right. But he just, he always says to me is that, I mean, but the, the kids hadn't died yet. Right. So you just have to remove yourself from historical understanding and put yourself back in the moment that they knew about it, but it was this very abstract, far off. And that it mattered, civil rights mattered to them, but they weren't marching the street every day. You know, and um, I feel hesitant about speaking for him, but in my email somewhere, he makes an analogy of gay rights. You know, he said that today, and this was like 2010, but he mm-hmm. said, and before the but you know he said you know it was like something today that that you support and it's a cause that you believe in but you might not be in the street every day so but the fact that they that, no, that nobody had died and i should say nobody white had died right right that, uh, sure. I, that, yeah. between that and then yeah. the, between that and the fact that they had they did have tunnel vision right i mean still, <laughs> oh, absolutely he, he dropped out of mit he was such a fucking mm-hmm. blues jump so that best as i can explain it yeah one thing i wanted to bring up too about the whole journey with both the guys coming in from the west and the guys coming in from the north is that you know in today's age and people talk about quote-unquote cultural appropriation i don't think that you know after watching the film and anyone who watched the film i think would become very aware of the fact that it wasn't an issue of cultural appropriation at all it was the fact that they wanted everyone else to hear what they heard in Sunhouse and skip james you know and all these guys i mean like they wanted to take it to the mountaintops basically and have everybody say look this is what we've heard you know we want everyone to catch on to this and i think you know that's a real to me it was an obsessiveness almost like a duty with john fate
you know, him learning to play all these songs. I mean, I don't even think I wouldn't want to speak for Faye, but I think that he would even tell you that he couldn't even come close to playing what they played. Like, I mean, he, I think even Faye would say that it was, you know, a kind of weak attempt. I don't know. I, I just think uh, it wasn't cultural appropriation at all. No, I know. I agree. I mean, it, it doesn't qualify as appropriation for a few reasons. One is, that, you know, they really didn't have a plan. No. Uh, you know, it wasn't it wasn't scripted. I mean, they find these guys and they're like, wait, now what? Yeah. You know, and, you know, nobody made any money off this. You know, Skip Mississippi John Hurd made a handful of money. Skip James made enough money to continue his health care. Sunhouse, you know, I mean, he was able to tour, but they're not, you know, it's not like Dick Waterman or Phil Spiro reaped a commission from right. finding them. Um, sure. But, but then also, you're right, with Fahey and with others, there was this element, and this is, I think, one of the crucial dimensions of the film, that, you know, the, the music could only be explained by those who practiced it. Sure. And by those who wrote it. And sure. that it, it was lost. And that whatever had fermented in Mississippi in the 1930s to create the songs of the early blues, that it was only the masters of the tradition who could account for it. And yeah, and Fahey wanted to find Skip James to learn his tunic. Al Wilson of Canned Heat was living in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And when all these blues guys came to the Newport Folk Festival, Wilson stayed in the house with them and jammed with them. Hmm. Oh, and he man. A, and he, he wrote a very long letter to his roommate afterward that has been preserved. And half of his letter is, is about tunics and what they thought and what they got wrong. And he was when he learned that Sleepy John Estes played an open G tuning, he wrote it all caps, triple underlined. Wow. <laughs> so it's not so much it's yeah, so it's not so oh, much appropriation man. as it is you know, it just as it is college student fanboy right uh you know, summer summer errand that they somehow right. strike gold. But I mean with that whole the whole part of the film with the house and the photography of everybody that was there that weekend Oh my God, man! Yeah. You talk about walking amongst gods. Like I, I just said to Morris a couple of days ago, of you know, we were just having conversation, and I said, man, if there was one moment in time, if I ever had a time machine, man, it's just like that. <laughs> I could not yeah, believe who was there. Like that, that is just you know, like there's know. Wolf, there's Muddy, like there's every like I was just oh, like a stunt. I know. Now the working title of the film was the Blues House. Um, wow. And that never that never happened again. You no. know that one, that one year in 1964 the Newport Folk Festival arranged lodging by genre so all the blues people stay together. They never did it again. Wow. So where did country blues go from that point? I mean, I know that I don't want to steal Tim's thunder but we're speaking, you know, that these guys were doing like the work of Alan Lomax in a way was that lightning in a bottle i mean i know that sunhouse did do some other recordings i've got a great album of uh, him performing a, a gig in london in 1970 and they did go and release albums on vanguard and the like i got a letter this morning how do you bring it red say hurry hurry the gal you love is dead I got a letter this morning, I say, how you reckon it red? He say, hurry, hurry, cause the gown you love is it. Were there other musicians who were sought out after that? I mean, the film talks about Booker White and Mississippi John Hurt, who I absolutely adore. But were there other sure. musicians who people went to search for after that? 
No, I, they had tried to find other people. I mean, the, the um, afterwards, I don't know. Prior to that, there had been attempts to find blues artists who turned out to be dead. Right. right? I mean, Lomax had tried to find Robert Johnson. That's When Lomax met Muddy Waters, he was in Mississippi to find Robert Johnson. Okay. And, you know, they tried to find Patton, and Patton, of course, long dead. Right. So that's the thing, is that, that, is that there were, you know, there were these... Um, other attempts that right. people well, I know. Still, you know that's the thing about a, a blues side is that it's, people still don't know about Willie Brown is. Mm. RL was playing in Europe at the end of the 60s and early 70s yeah, yeah doing festivals but I don't know how you know he came up you know as far as I know with the recordings that I've collected of RL I mean that's just like I say like the end of the 60s and the 70s when he started but I don't know because he came from Mississippi as well some that area, but yeah, yeah. Same, yeah, in the hill country, the same area, right? Right. No, but to answer the, you know, what happened to the to the, to the country blues after that? I mean, you know, I would say it it, it wasn't like it, it never became top ten music, but its place, you know, its life was extended. America's cultural canon was cemented. And it's always been, it's never been a popular music. I mean, that's one of the reasons why these guys were lost, just because their records never sold. But it's always been, and this is, I think, important to note, more beloved by artists than the public, perhaps. And so finding these guys and giving them this renaissance in the, in the 60s, you know, that you can see how that leads to Jack White or, or to Dan Arbach, or to Bonnie Raitt, to Cassandra Wilson, and that the, the, the people who make music, there's always... You know, it, it's it's crazy, but country blues always does sort of come back and is revealed to be among their legion of influences. I wanted to ask about the musicians that you used in the film. Now, I was saying to the guys before um, we dialed you in that I was super excited seeing Alvin Youngblood Hart in the film. Baby, side my pony, hitch up my black man. Baby, side my I saw him perform here in Melbourne, maybe, I don't know, whenever it was at Big Mama's Door, his first album came out, and he always struck me as, this guy is the real deal, you know, I think he's like a walking yeah. historian, and I thought, wow, this guy is so appropriate for this film, but you also had you know, the great band, the North Mississippi All-Stars, and Buddy Guy, and Chris Thomas King, and Gary Clark Jr., yeah. Did you know these musicians and did they just climb on board saying, yeah, absolutely, that's the sort of project we want to be involved with? And how did that come to be? Um, no, I mean, as producer, that's the, you know, that's like the, the groveling, insane, just constant emailing and begging, not the artists, but the managers. You know, once you finally get through the door, yes, there is a great deal of affection for Sunhouse or Skip James that, that um, greases the access and the time with that. Right. But um, no, I didn't know them. And, we, you know, we just, there were others we contacted who weren't able to do it, who declined. You know, sometimes schedules doesn't work out, want to do it. But 
No, we wanted, and we wanted a gamut of age and, and sort of background. So, mm. you know, yeah, North Mississippi All-Stars, Alvin Youngblood Hart, I mean, they're directly in that lineage of Mississippi style. Mm-hmm. Uh, they play that way. Their family taught them to play that way. You know, but, but Gary's from Texas. He learned Sunhouse off records. He's younger. He also, uh, he grew up listening to hip-hop. It's a new perspective. So, we, you know, we wanted to just make sure that we had a range of performers that would, whose appearance in the film would, would embody what I said earlier about country blues, its, mm. its longevity, special place, uh, yeah, in the heart of contemporary blues. Anyway, you know, Valerie June said, said a really interesting thing. It's just that, like, she heard Elizabeth Cotton, and she said, you know, she doesn't have a, a classical sound voice, right? Her voice sounds Southern and kind of weird. My voice is sort of Southern and kind of weird. <laughs> It's a strange yeah. music. It's not a music that exists. Anymore. And so, you know, making that connection the first time that it happens, uh, you know, it's, such, it's so indelible that we were glad they were able to speak about that. I mean, Valerie, like Alvin, or like, the, I mean, she's from Hernando, Tennessee. That's where wow. Robert Wilkins is from. You know, it's a spit over the line from the spit. I was going to say with the country blues, to me, one of the things that really struck me that blew my mind was that a number of years back after hearing a lot of the music that comes out of, for example, uh, Molly and, you know, and things like and groups like Tenari Wind and a lot of the, the de- what they call it, the desert blues. You can see the immediate lineage, like right to the country blues. You know, I wasn't familiar with a lot of the African stuff. And then all of a sudden I started listening to this and it's just incredible. Like I just like now I, I, I can see like the direct path. It's, it's just mind boggling. Yeah. And it's, you know, and that too, there's a component of that to the film, although it, it's, I'm not sure how, I mean, we weren't able to emphasize it. You know, blues for a lot of people, it's just, it's a white guy in a bar doing Sweet Home Chicago. Right. right, exactly. And that, and, and that, you know, nothing and nothing could be further from, from what it actually is. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Or how, you know, or how various it is. You know, we talk about that house in Newport. I mean, you know, most of the people in that house are from Mississippi and their music yep. sounds nothing like Right. If you're from the Delta, it doesn't sound like the Hill Country. And it doesn't no. sound like, you know, the southern part of the state near Jackson. That you have right. all of these, you know, regional traditions and regional styles. People who grow up 50 miles from each other and not sound anything alike, which was the nature of American music prior to, you know, really radio. Right. And the, the only thing you could listen to was what you made back then. And I think there's another factor with Mississippi. You know, Sunhouse and Skip James recorded for the first time. They didn't do it with any intention to get rich. It was just the undeniable need to be heard. And that was what the whole summer project was about to me, was that Mississippi as a whole, the undeniable need to be heard. And that, to me, is one of the strongest things that comes out of the film. The undeniable need to be represented and to have people recognize these voices. Yeah, in the New York Times review of the film, A.O. Scott, in talking about the two strands, he said, it's unifying themes in recognition. Yeah, which I think sums up the film pretty well.
thing that really sort of struck me as being not just super clever, but so well done was the opening animated title sequence, and especially in an era where films just about don't have title sequences anymore. You've decided that you're going to condense the events of the previous three years that lead up to the events that you want to convey in the film. So as well as including who produced, who wrote, who the musicians are who are in the film, you have the guitar strings being used like as a timeline interspersed with archival footage of the governor of Mississippi declaring that segregation won't die and musicians who were playing around at the time and and, uh, the audio of you're listening to Hootenanny. How did you come to decide that you wanted to condense that all to three minutes and i've got to say it was done so very very effectively bringing the viewer up to speed right and the music's amazing it's gary clark's uh, version of Jimi hendrix's third song yes yes and the first time and the first time i proposed to sam and david that we used that song they thought i was out of my mind <laughs> and then dave was in the she was in the editing bay and she had the you know the really big speakers on and she put the track through the ad and then you know that was it it was it <laughs> But no, um, the, the, no, the animation, I'm glad you noticed that it, in that opening title, it's by Mindbomb, a, a truly fantastic company. And, you know, they were the ones who envisioned the style and using the guitar strings and weaving wow. it together like that. But what's great about it, and this is really when we, I think Dave hit on this, but there's so much damn information in the film. There's so many characters. We do not have time to orient the viewer historically, mm. which is also boring. So instead of saying that the sit-in movement began in 1960, we're going to show it the main titles as part of the larger sequence. So we were. What really, with those three minutes, are meant to do is to present the time period background, so that we don't have to do it with our interviews or via narration. You just sort of immediately get more of the film. There's so many documentaries that could learn well from doing something like that. And it was done entertainingly. That's the one of the most important things I think about the film is you realize that there's lessons here for people to learn, but you don't want them to be bored. Well, no filmmaker does, obviously, but you've right. sort of worked out the way, here's the message that we want to convey. And we right. can still do it entertainingly and concisely right now. Let's move on to the bits that we really want to focus on. And Well, and, and I think having a plot helps. A lot of music docs are like, well, let's make a film about a student. Right. Mm. Um, let's make a film about a city. Mm-hmm. Here, there's a there's a very definite plot. There's um, there's a clue, and there's a search, and there's a road trip, and there's something unexpected that happens. And the end of the journey. You know, there's a mixed right. blessing that comes from the fulfillment of that journey. There's something for everybody in this. For those blues aficionados, there's the hook. And then for people that are disinterested in the history of the time and the civil unrest, you know, and the the fight for civil equality, I mean, there's that hook as well. I've always said the best documentaries out there are the ones that you may not have an interest in the subject matter at all, but you're just compelled to follow through with it. And there's something in it that just propels you forward. Even And by the end, it's like, you know, you're completely immersed in it. And that's why I would like highly recommend this film to anyone. It, everyone just needs to see this. Yeah, well, I, I hope they do. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to um, to change uh, track a little bit, Benjamin. I wanted to ask you, Phil, it was released in 2016. First of 2016, yeah. Right, so it, it was kind of out there on the uh, on the lead up to the uh, to the, and um, obviously here we are a few years later in the current political climate we find ourselves in. 
know, the, the film more frighteningly relevant than ever, I feel. Yeah, I just I wondered, because of the uh, the political climate we was in now, has that yeah. kind of altered how you feel about the film? Or do you feel that audiences are maybe getting something different from the film now because of where we are? Uh, I think the latter. You know, I don't know if it changes my feelings of the film, but I, I do think, sure. you know, nobody sees the film as a history lesson. And, and when we started, that was what it was seemed like it was going to be like. Um, yeah. Sam and I met in, in, in January of 2014. And at that point, I was like, shit, Sam, the, the 50th anniversary of the summer project's coming up. The film won't be ready in time. That was the only sort of outside indicator that, that we were thinking of. And then 2014 was, was Ferguson and, you know, the, the Voting Rights Act. It just, you know, that provision had just been negated by the courts. Mm-hmm. Trump ran, and so the more we, the, the you know, as we were making the film, it became more and more relevant. And at the end of it, David Dennis, one of the lead organizers of Freedom Summer, says the country didn't want to do this, and he's talking about voting rights, the Voting Rights Act. He said we had to shame them into doing it. Mm. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. It's a really un- dark lesson, but it's that the motive, the mo, or the instinct of the United States is not necessarily to do the right thing. <laughs> And, you know, you think? Uh, <laughs> yeah. into it. And that, but and that also we didn't adequately deal with it. We just swept it under the rug, and now it's coming back. Sure, so yeah. I, you know, there's that. You know, there's that part of it also. So presumably, you've been showing the film on the festival circuit around the states. How has the film been received in the southern states, in well, Mississippi in particular? Uh, it's it's been well received, you know. What ha- what ends up happening is that in the South, it's 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 more visceral. I mean, you just see it, you know. People realize that, that you know they're it just it stirs up all the sense of Southerness and the terrible contradictions and the, the hatred and affection that are just one step from each other in your heart, and your mind. You know, um, it's not you know the audience like just doing a passing glance. The audience might have the same reaction, or the same level of approval, or whatever. It's a lot rawer when you're in Mississippi than if you're in Michigan. And people will know somebody who was on a lynch mob, or people will know somebody oh. who played the blues and you know or their father had these blues records but he didn't want anybody to know about it there's always you know there, there's just um, it's just much more intimate so have you found that at some of these screenings that you might have had in the south or, or anywhere really for that matter have you had these sorts of people come up and do a Q&A after the film people who weren't necessarily directly involved in the film but were able to say I know firsthand someone who was uh, a blues musician at the time or my dad was at Newport or I, yeah. or I knew someone who, who was harassed or lynched yeah a lot of that they'll come i mean if i'm at the screening they'll come up to me directly and say that uh-huh. you know and a lot of it is yeah it, it, it's, it's my my dad or my mom this or i knew somebody you know wow or they're an old summer project you know so what's the uh, life of the film at the moment is it still on the festival circuit still doing cinema screenings no it's now uh what it's available to, to rent and to buy right. on itunes amazon etc Will this get a physical? You know, will this that, get a physical media release, like a DVD, Blu-ray release? Uh, I I don't know. I thought that there was, and then it, it sort of fell through. There's a deal for a soundtrack, actually, in, in addition, and that, that's kind wow. of whole. But I can't say I can't say definitively. But um, no, we we did festivals, and then we had a, a theatrical, limited theatrical run. You know, um, in the states, we did two weeks in New York and a week in LA, and then there were a lot of other cities thrown in, and now it's up. Um, for sale and the rest of the world the other markets that's being worked out right right okay because we um we want our 
audience uh, anywhere in the world to be able to see this. We're, as we, as you can guess, we're all completely enamoured of uh, this film. It's it's important. It's entertaining. I learnt so much from it, and you've really got a sense of great style. As, you know, we've already gone and sort of spoken about the animation and that one key scene with Robert Wilkins and the three New yeah. York travellers asking for directions. That was one of the most tense wow. moments in a film I can recall in yeah. a long time. Yeah, and it, you know, a, a moment that was really important to Sam, the director of the film, who you know is African-American and who understood in, in ways much better than I ever could, that to just to be a black man in the South and to not stand down and press, you know, three whites for directions is, is actually an act of tremendous heroism and courage. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the fact that they actually turned around and gave them directions, that's really stunning to me. Yeah, I know. Right? It could have yeah. gone either way, right? Right, yeah. right. And I just thought, oh, man, like, this is going to go so bad. <laughs> what are you doing now, Benjamin? Any new projects? Yeah, um, well, I have a lot of projects at the moment that I'm, that I'm writing. And then, but for film, Sam and I are in the earliest stages of the talking about the FBI surveillance of Martin Luther King. Wow. Uh, oh, why? Yeah, so it's very, it's very early, but uh, we've, we've done a little bit of shooting. Some of the same people in, in, who did two trains are involved. You know, it's called MLK FBI. So, you know, it could be to, it could be done in 15 months. It could be done in 15 years. I don't know. <laughs> that is right. the next thing. Yeah. That's going to be a monumental, I can imagine, being a monumental project. It's a foreboding or frightening subject, but it, um, right. you know, it, a little bit like two trains, it gets to the quick of um, the American psyche, the, you know, the, the most essential sort of conflict right. you know, over who, who is an American and what does it mean to be free. Yeah. You're doing something historical, but still has, unfortunately, very, very contemporary relevance. Right. Well, look, uh, Benjamin, thank you so very much. This has been really fantastic for us to speak to. It's been a great conversation, and we wish you much success with your MLK FBI project and much success with future screenings and viewings of uh, Two Trains Running. We'll be plugging the hell out of it. Yeah, no, I I really appreciate the time and the interest, you guys. Thank Thank you so much, much, man. Thank you. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to See Here, Episode 57. Well, it's please. Don't let me know You know a man like me He needs some place to go He needs some place to go He needs some place to go Oh, where are Oh, where are Oh, where are Welcome to Ploitation, the Ausploitation podcast. I'm November. I'm Daria. And I'm Callum. Uh, g'day, ladies and gentlemen. Ausploitation movies are a subgenre of exploitation movies. But you could do it for cheap in Australia because nobody films in Australia. You've been around money too. You're going off your head. Is Bruce Spence in it? Then yes. <laughs> then yes, it <laughs> is an exploitation. Each month we'll look at a film like Razorback, Alvin Purple, The Cars That Ate Paris, Felicity, Mad Dog, Nightmares, Road Games, Stone, 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 Stone,
Well then, let's not waste any time. It was exploitation at its best, because part of the thing about going to see every exploitation movie that came out is you had to be just completely ripped off. It's about Australian attitudes. Here comes the counterculture. And with plenty of spoilers and strong language. Cop that, you rotten pommy bastard. You can find us on podsploitation.podbean.com and on whichever app brings you your favourite podcasts. Once again, huge thanks to Benjamin Hedin for giving us the time to speak about his magnificent film, Two Trains Running, and the three of us can't recommend this film highly enough. I'll try and include some links in the post for this episode of the podcast. You should try and follow up with a viewing at your earliest possible chance. We all love it. We all give it the 10 thumbs up, even though we don't have 10 thumbs. Briefly during our discussion, we made mention of guitarist John Fay. I wanted to give a shout out to Ryan and Joe, who are the hosts of an excellent podcast called Highway Hi-Fi. It's a music history podcast. And on the latest episode, as I'm recording this, which I think is episode 36, they do a lengthy discussion on the life and history of John Fay. So it puts his history into even more context. So I'd wholeheartedly recommend that you check them out and then go through their past episodes. But if particular relevance to our talk today with Benjamin Hedin, you might want to follow up and listen to Joe and Ryan on Highway Hi-Fi podcast talking about John Fay. So time to talk about next month's film. And I'm really quite excited that the next few months, we're speaking to filmmakers. Well, we're looking for someone for December. That's not quite locked in yet, but hopefully we will we'll reveal more detail if that comes to be. But certainly uh, November's episode, January and February's episodes are all with filmmakers, and we're hugely excited about that. So we should talk about what November's episode is going to be. We are going to be talking to the director of a new film called Boom, a film about the Sonics. The director's name is Jordan Albertson. I know that you guys are both big fans of the whole garage music scene and with nuggets and all that sort of thing. And certainly the Sonics were a big part of that scene. But musically, I think what they created is still immensely relevant and hugely influential as to uh, a lot of the bands that we love. Absolutely, yeah. I'm really looking forward to this one next month. Uh, I can't wait to uh, to watch this one. It's going to mm. be great, I'm sure. Housekeeping. House cleaning. House, house cleaning. <laughs> housekeeping. <laughs> If you want to get in contact with us, you can send us an email at seeherepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love it if you decided to join our Facebook group. We're at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash seehear. That's S-W-E-H-E-A-R. And we'd love it if you started up a music film related conversation you can make some recommendations we still have one request to cover from this year we're probably not going to get around to that until 2019 now but you never know we might do a bonus episode you never know but we do have one more request and i think it's tyler kennedy who made that request we will 
get round to it. I promise you. It's a great suggestion that you made. Just- I just uh, point out as well, Morris, to uh, our loyal listeners out there, we are on Instagram as well. Mm. If anyone wants to follow us, uh, look us up. We are See Here Podcast, and we do post occasionally when I remember to do it. Well, I think by the time we put this podcast out, I think you should put out like 50 new photos. That's better or something. There'll certainly be a couple before this. Well, I'm going to pimp the heck out of this episode because it's been such a good one. So, mm, mm. 50, 50 nude photos? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 50 Wait. nude photos. That's what I said. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> we should maybe put some photos of our handsome visages. What do you reckon? I don't know about that. We want to encourage people to listen, not frighten them off. So. Okay, yeah, yeah. Good point. So, any final thoughts? points to make before uh, we sign out gents i was just going to say seek out this film and uh watch yep. it and recommend it to people it's tremendous it really is and uh, as i said during our interview with uh, with benjamin it is um it's more relevant than ever so do yourself mm-hmm. a favor and find it and watch it it's great i would also recommend that people go out and search some of this music out i mean you don't have to be a hardcore fan of country blues or blues at all having said that i'm pretty sure all three of us are but you don't have to be it's just a really well-told story it's, it's not just about the blues side of things is there's human rights issues going on it's a human story i, I just i can't imagine anyone in our community watching this and not getting something out of it the country blues as far as i'm concerned it's like a mosquito bite because once you get bit man you know there's no way you're not going to itch you get that itch and that's it there's no way you cannot be greatly rewarded by delving into the country blues my word yep okay so until next month watch some movies watch this movie listen to some great blues music and because it's Shocktober, I guess. Watch a few horror films in between if you have to. Uh, and uh, Phantom of the Paradise. Yes. Of the Paradise. <laughs> Black Roses. Black Roses. Rock yeah, and Roll Nightmare. Yeah. There's got to be there something go. else out there. Oh, trick or treat. Yeah. yeah. So until next month, cheers. Bye. Oh five six, please don't leave me in this fix, baby. I wanna be your salty dog. Oh baby, let me be your salty dog. Your man at all, baby. I wanna be your salty dog. I said, a little fish, big fish swimming in the water. Says, come back, man, get my quarter, baby. I wanna be your salty dog. Oh, baby, let me be your salty dog. Don't wanna be your man at all, baby. I wanna be your salty dog.